This is a Black Man Sketch, Episode 5, with special guest Zen Priest, board member of Ujama Place, and author of Untangling Karma. Let's see, I've been hanging around Ujama for about seven years. I've been on the board, and there was a stretch of time where I taught meditation here. And um, so... The reason I'm here is because one of the chapters in my book is about race and how, as a white-skinned woman, I'm trying to understand and soften any internalized racism that I might have gotten from living in this culture. And it's also a book about my own uh, I'm Jewish, I'm and I was born in 1951, which was right after the genocide of the Jewish people in the Holocaust. And because of that positioning, I think I had a lot of internalized anti-Semitism. And I think that internalized racism is also, it's about oppression. And this is a reaction to oppression that if the culture and the world hate you, then there's, you begin to believe it in some ways and have self-hatred. So actually the whole book is about my recovery from hating myself, or I like to call it an exorcism of hate. And one of the chapters is about race. Um, and let's talk about that. Um, there's a lot of ways that white-skinned people can get involved in racial injustice. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why they don't. You know, the dominant culture, they don't, there's not much skin in the game, right? They have all the power, they have the money, so why should they change? But there are ways that white people begin to realize how much racism is hurting ourselves. And one of the ways is falling in love with someone from a different race. And all of a sudden, you start to see what the, uh, other, the others, quote unquote, lives are like. And I'm embarrassed in a way to say, but I fell in love with the African-American woman that cleaned our house and raised me, basically. Um, and a fact that I learned when I was writing the book is in the 50s, when I was growing up, uh, as high as 90% of black women were domestic help. 90%! That totally shocked me. And in a way, the stories that I write about in the book about Melissa um, are stories about your grandma, or maybe I'm thinking your great-grandma, if you're young. Um, so I wrote my story about Melissa. And one of the most poignant moments for me was I went to Greenville, Mississippi, when she was dying. And on her deathbed, it kind of makes me cry, on her deathbed, I, a white, young Jewish woman from the upper class, was on one side of her bed, and her birth daughter was on the other side of her bed. And the birth daughter had been left down south, was raised by the aunties, because Melissa was part of the migration up to Chicago to get better wages and, you know, to be in the North. So that moment was so powerful for me that I felt like I have to understand, in Buddhism we call karma, uh, and my book is called Untangling Karma. That is, I really wanted to understand, how did this happen? that on one side of the bed was me who got all Melissa's attention, and on the other side of the bed was her birth daughter, who they had a very complicated relationship, of course, because she was left down south. So that was so poignant to me. 
that I said, I have to understand this more. What were the causes and conditions that created this scene? And so I made it a point to study slavery. And in the course of doing that for myself, I went to Africa with Ujama Place, which we're going to talk about mostly. I went um, to Birmingham to the Legacy Museum, which some of you might be going to this September. Um, I went to Greenville, Mississippi for uh, Melissa's death and funeral. So I think history, knowing history, is very important because it gives you an understanding of what has caused this emotional stuff inside yourself. So um, that's what I did. And the first chapter is about internalized anti-Semitism. And I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is the concentration camp, and worked on that history for myself. And in, these later, in the last chapter, which is what I'm going to talk about mostly, was going to Africa with Ujamaa Place. So let me just say why I came to Ujamaa Place, which is I felt there were four black women who raised me because my parents were always working. And I'm going to say something maybe you'll laugh or maybe this is taboo, I'm not supposed to say. But I found my connection with black culture to be the place that I felt loved, I felt soulful, I got spirituality. And I think the dominant white culture is so soulless, if it's okay for me to say, <laughs> you know, so straight and linear and uh, uptight. So partly, I didn't want to lose that connection with what had given me so much love, acceptance, and I felt like I owed a great debt to these women who raised me. And part of the way I thought I'd repay the debt was by coming here and helping. And then I came here, and I'm trying to remember the guy who was on the board. He's now passed away. Very important. Rick Heidinger. Heidinger. When I got on the board, and I said, oh, I'm here because I want to help and everything, and Rick Heidinger looked at me and said, you know, we're about the transformation of African-American men. But in truth, I'm the one who's being transformed. And I feel that too, that my relationship to Ujama is one of the ways that I am uh, being transformed, letting go of my stereotyped prejudices that I have around skin color. Okay, I think I did that. Um, well, let's just, because you're going to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, I'll just read you the paragraph about the Legacy Museum, just to give you a little taste of what you're going to go towards. Um, and I went, actually, I went when I was writing the book. This was after I had been to Africa in, with Ujama Place. In Africa, I learned about international slavery. But when I went to Montgomery, I learned about domestic slavery, what happened within our own country. So here is a paragraph. Each photo on the wall was an abomination, as the last one was. There were men and women chained to posts, beaten to death, hung from trees. Was it possible that Melissa, that was my... Uh, maid or friend, was it possible that Melissa's father or mother, grandfather or grandmother or neighbor was one of these people? Oh, I wish I had been able to hear the deeper story of Melissa's life from her when she was alive. The Legacy Museum was filled with many layers of sound that created a jarring clamor of noise. 
One thread of sound was the recordings of deeply sung spirituals and work songs that emanated from two of the six holograms of enslaved people positioned in the alcoves that stopped me in my tracks as I turned the corner from the foyer into the museum. The hologram figures looked and sounded so real, so alive. Men and women, old people and children, handcuffed or in rags, all of them telling their stories, looking directly into my eyes. I was completely stilled and holding my hands over my heart, putting my nose to the bars of the alcove. I listened to every word of their stories. The singing of spirituals pervaded the whole of the museum, museum, leaving a deep expression of the humanity that can persevere through outer harm and expressing the voice of both profound grief and the overriding sound of faith. So that's where you're going to that museum if, you choose, if you're lucky enough to go. Um, okay, then we all went to Africa. So let's start okay. with Africa. How am I doing? Okay. Yeah. Good on time. Really good. All right. So, oh, I want to read Rose Wall. So what I felt was really cool about going to Africa for me was all of a sudden I was the other as the white-skinned person. And everyone is black in Africa. So for no, me, what well, <laughs> I said, no, no. Well, a lot of majority, the dominant culture is black. Um, and for me, this was so interesting to switch that around. And from what I understand from the men and Monica and the people that went with me on the trip, it was such a relief to them to be in a culture that was predominantly black. So let me just, I, this was from a book that we got at the slave castles, and it was the introduction in the book. And it was written by an American black woman who moved her family to Africa, to Ghana. After 10 generations of my family being in the USA, my small nuclear family dared to break the cycle and return to Africa, making Ghana our home. This transition has been filled with many challenges, much learning, growth, and joy beyond measure. Ghana is a beautiful and imperfect place like most of the world. But here in Ghana, I have this one simple joy fulfilled almost every day. I walk into a room unapologetically black, and I am surrounded by a group of people who usually expect nothing but the best of me. I am not considered dangerous, a thief, or less than due to the color of my skin. Many will perhaps not understand this, but most Africans living in a country where they are the minority certainly will. So that was my first understanding. Actually, it happened in the airport. The, the waiting room that was going to Ghana was full of color and people laughing and talking and moving around very alive. And across the way were all the white-skinned people sitting <laughs> completely quiet, reading, or there was such a contrast. And I turned to Monique and I said, this is wild, you know, <laughs> like, this is so different. And she said, yeah, I finally feel at home. Right. So I think this was an experience, a general experience, of the people I went to on the trip. That's right. Okay. So the first thing we did, I want to make sure I get his name right. This is called um, the Star, the Black, Black Star. Star. 
right? Black Star. So, and this was the place that where Ghana became independent and they memorialized it. Now there's uh, highways around it, but at that time it was a big field and it was where the uh, state broke off from Britain. And um, Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Nkrumah was the first president. And the thing that blew my mind, this was the very first day, was that happened in 1957. I was alive in 1957. I was six years old. In my lifetime, all of Africa was colonized, were colonies of Europe. I mean, to me, that was unbelievable. I thought 1850, maybe. No, 1957. And Nkrumah was the first person who liberated a African country. And it was the first country that was liberated in Africa. Yeah, the first right. one. So that was the start. So maybe show the second slide. We right. got to climb up to the top. <laughs> and there we are. Um, uh, let's see. This I forget which That's one is Clarence. Clarence is here, right? No, no, no Clarence, Clarence and Bernard. Bernard. Those were the two right. uh, Ujamaa people coming, <laughs> and this is Dr. Tyner who led the group, and this was kind of the local person who led us. So that was on top, and the other thing I want to say about the independence, this is so incredible. Nkrumah and his crew were imprisoned for sedition. They wanted to break off from Britain, and they were put in jail for it. And then the people did nonviolent protests, huge protests, and they got out of prison. They were released from prison, and then he became the president, the first president. And when he went into their Congress, I don't exactly know what they call their Congress, but when he went there to accept that he was going to lead the new nation, he went in his prison clothes, in his stripes, and so did like four of his main people. So he accepted the presidency in the garment of being imprisoned. Isn't that, it's a, it's a really great story for me. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Um, one of the first things we did, this is at the University of Ghana. This guy is the, the leading um, professor on slavery, and he gave us an incredible talk about slavery and how the Dutch and the whole uh, thing. Let's go to the next slide. So then we went to Senshi Ferry. Um, so this was because Dr. Tyner had connections. So we really had a trip that was uh, specialized because of her networking. Yeah, this is, okay. this is fine. Okay. So the first thing that, so we went to a little village, basically, and we were treated as very special guests. And this what this is Monique. She didn't want to put this <laughs> like, in, but anyway, <laughs> here are the chiefs. You can see them, and then the people from the village. They all came in the night, and it was very, um, it was very informal. But everyone on our tour had to go in the center and say what your name was, and then because of hearing what your name was and looking at you and hearing your voice, the chiefs would decide what tribe you came from. <laughs> and then someone in the circle who was from that tribe would come up and give you a hug. And I'm sitting there, I'm the, there's one other white person. <laughs> he was the videographer for the tribe from Denmark, I think. And I'm, my, I'm shaking, oh my God, what's gonna happen <laughs> if I go up there, you know? So, but I went up, it was my turn, I went up, 
and I said, um, I'm Judith Regeer, and I'll be very curious what tribe you put me in. <laughs> and everybody laughed. Thank God they laughed. And um, they gave me a tribe anyway by the sound of my name. And there was a very young boy who was from that tribe. And he came up to give me a hug. And I knew by then, that was how long ago? I was in my 60s anyway then. Now I'm in my 70s, if you can believe it. But um, I knew by then that the older women should give a blessing to the younger men or the younger anybody. So that's what I did. When he came up to give me a hug, I gave him a blessing. And everyone really liked that, you know, that I gave him a blessing. Okay, then the next day, next slide, the next day we went to a formal, um, the tribe formally welcomed us. These are all the main leaders of the tribe, and they're doing a ritual of putting tea down on the ground. And you could see that they all did it. Someone gave them a little cup of tea, and they threw it on the ground. Next one. And I loved this, too. These were all the staffs. And the heads of the staffs can screw off, and they can switch them around according to what ceremony they're doing. So I don't know what those meant, but they were specifically for welcoming people into the tribe. So that was very, very interesting. And I'm a Zen person, so we have a very classical ceremonies uh, that come from Japan. And I was shocked at how similar. When you go into ceremonial space, it's very, very similar. Like we, we have holy water. Right, so does all the Christians have holy water, and we would also throw it on the ground. Okay, next one. Then, also, because of um, Dr. Tyner's connections, we went to see, this is the king, that was the most, uh, he, he was almost the most powerful king uh, in Ghana. What's very, very interesting, I don't exactly know how it is, so you would have to look it up, but um, they have a federal government that's run kind of similar to Britain with the Congress and uh, courts. Um, oh, it's similar to Britain, but it's all black, you know, the dominant culture. And... Um, then the second tier is they left the tribes and the kings. And I, I think that might like be like state culture, that their territory, they make the rules for their territory. Um, so you can see here's Otis, me, Monique, uh, and other people, the two Ujama men were there. Okay, let's go to the next. Oh, the guy, the thing I remembered by being with the king was he gave this quote, until the lions have their own historians, the hunters will always be the heroes. And that quote I also saw on the walls of the slave castles. Until the lions have their own historians. The hunter will always be the hero. Okay, next. So we did quite a lot of things around Sanchi Ferry. How am I doing time-wise? Good. 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 Um, so we went to schools, hospitals, and this was a preschool. Aren't they just totally adorable? Um, that's me. <laughs> and, um, and this guy was fabulous. He was the librarian and the preschool teacher. And they sang all their songs, and they had little hand gestures. It was quite nice. But what you could see there was the scarcity 
of their lives. Like they all, they got clothes from the nursery school, this orange stuff. Um, many, they did have shoes on, but almost not. There was hardly any educational products, and there were very, very little toys. So let me just say, because this is important to me, I want to talk about obroni. Um, in, so a white person in Ghana is called a obroni, which is white person in Twi. But it has a lot of slang translations. So the first slang translation for a white person in Ghana is trickster. And the second translation for Obrani is um, white man devil. And the whole time I was there, I was called Obrani <laughs> everywhere I went. Uh, one story was when I was with, when we were at the nursery school, a little girl had a white doll. And she ran up to me and said, Obrani, Obrani and showed me her doll, that she recognized that her doll was white, and I was white, too. And I, I didn't know, did she realize her doll was white? Or did seeing me make her understand her doll was white? Uh, but that was a very poignant moment for me, um, connecting with this little girl because she had a white doll. And... Uh, I'll just say, then I thought, God, we should get black dolls for Africa. That should be a new not-for-profit or something, you know, and I'm going to do it. And I am working a little bit with Artika Tyner about black dolls for Africa, but that's not, that's not the solution, right? It's uh, the issue of race, the issue of poverty in Africa is very, very deep. And these little things that I think of aren't really going to make that much difference, you know, black dolls for Africa. However, I will say that there was a European white woman who set up the library, the preschool, the school, and the healthcare center in this tribe, in Senshi Ferry. So it is possible for us to make a difference if if we do actually do these ideas that we have. Judith, okay. I, and I just wanted to ask you a question about that because um, your thoughts on, I saw, what I saw was yes, you could perceive and look at it because it's different from what we have. We have floors, not dirt that we're walking on when we're in our schools. We have windows, so it's not raining in our classrooms. But I also saw that that wasn't a priority for them. I saw happy people that mm -hmm. didn't, here we would feel that we're less than, we're impoverished. And I just thought for them, it was like, this is, this is normal. I'm happy, I'm taking care of my village, takes care of me and feeds me and I'm safe. Mm -hmm. I don't know did you, if you yes. got that sense. Um, I. There was so much soulfulness in Africa. They were so connected to the earth. Right. They eat tubers. I mean, they're very, very connected to the earth. And the main quality of Ghana, Ghanaians, is their hearts are so open and welcome. I forget the word. Aquaba. Aquaba was everywhere. They welcomed you with open arms and welcomed me as a white-skinned person with open arms. Very warm culture and uh, beautiful. And when we would ask them, there was one guy in our group who always said, well, what do you need? How can we help you? And consistently the answer was, we need your resources, but we don't need your advice. <laughs> and you stole our resources from us. And we think you should pay us back. That was kind of the... Did you say that too? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. 
And um, with that said, you know, the conversations of why we as African-Americans can't make it in a country with so much wealth. We had a lot of those conversations that that was real. That's also in the book somewhere, mm -hmm. which was they didn't understand racism. <laughs> like what? We would come to America. They thought coming to America, they would have opportunities. They get an education. They get employment opportunities and they would be fabulously welcomed. And I kept my mouth shut, of course, but the people that were in our group tried to tell them what being a black-skinned person was like in America and the ceiling that you often face, and they were quite shocked. Mm -hmm. you they seem to be not understand that. Yeah. Um, and not understanding that um, this is the land of plenty. Like, you have so much there. Even... You know, you had Clarence and Bernard who are part of this program. They saw that as like, you're in good shape. You're being well taken care of. They did not understand our plight that we go through here in America. So until they come to America. So the one guy who worked for the YMCA, he came to America a lot. And his story was so interesting. He said, well, I work for the YMCA. When I come to America, I relate to all white people, mostly. And when I say I want to go to the black community, they say, oh, it's too dangerous. You shouldn't go. Yeah, they prevent, they kind they, of steer them away and prevent they, yeah. you know, white people, prevent them from going into North Minneapolis, into what you would call what the hood they wanted to experience life with African Americans and they're they felt as though they're discouraged and prevented from doing so when they come to this country. And another really interesting discussion we had was about uh, Americans who uh, had understood racism and and ancestors were slaves, and Africans who come that don't have that background. And we don't get along, you know? The Somalis and African Americans uh, don't get along. So that was another really interesting conversation. That was at mm -hmm. that party, at that party. birthday party. And, and educated people, engineers and doctors and we were in a um, informal party setting. So we're able to, you know, everyone's having a few cocktails. So we're able to just really dig in with them. And that came up. And, and to one point, one of them said that it's because we were lazy. And we didn't even have to deal with it because another African man said, Hey, I take except I I take exception to that. That that's not what it is. So it was then they started, you know, going back and forth. So we were able to really dig in and get into these conversations to give them a better understanding of what it meant. At that time, we had had the Philando Castile um um murder and we were able to talk about those things, but again, the depiction of us is from what they see on TV. And they play the worst exploitation movies on African television. So they're seeing the worst of us on television. Okay. So one of our last stops was the W.E.B. Du Bois Museum. And this was also fascinating um, because as a older white American, I hardly knew anything about W.E.B. Du Bois. Nothing. He was erased from history. And he's a very, very important figure. Just tell me, 1985, uh, no, 1895, 1895. He graduated from Harvard as the first black American. Unbelievable what he must have gone through to get that, that to happen. 
he's helped start the NAACP, NAACP, and he was often exiled by the, American, the United States government, where his passport would be taken away and he had to live in a different country. And this is, of course, what's ha happened to many, many of the civil rights leaders and is happens today. I write in my book how the Black Matters, Black Lives Matters leaders can even do their work because there's a CIA file on them and they're watched. But I really, did you keep in the one that's in the corner? Yes. So this is the CIA file that was released. And I, I'm not kidding, it was five or six inches thick. And these are people from Ujamaa looking at the uh, CIA file. Every phone call, what restaurants he went to, what meetings he had, his calls. And his I calls with Dr. King, and they had everything on everything, or all the leaders were in that, that so file. Tell us. Otis's mom, I did some history on him, and I found the redacted um, FBI files on him, or not, well, a little bit on him, but mostly on his mother, about how many people went into her house, um, about the Ku Klux Klan following them, about. Um, they ran one of the women that stopped over, just a friend that stopped over at her house. They ran her off the road. Um, they didn't do anything about it. They just let her, you know, until somebody came and helped her and stuff like that. But his mom had crosses burned in their front yard when he was, I think he was in eighth grade or something like that. Oh, wow. And so it was happening for, you know, quite a while. It's not, you well, know. Yeah. So that's the other thing, this trip. This is all happening in my lifetime. The decolonization of Africa started in 1957, and the Civil Rights Act is 1964. That's when I was 13 years old. Before that, the African maids that I, were raising me couldn't vote. I mean, it's just unbelievable how current this history is to me. And this is why I think it's important to study the history because if you can face the pain of the history, and this is where spirituality, I think, comes in for me, because I was based in meditation, in holding, being able to hold the pain and digest the pain, I could go to these terrible sites and uh, metabolize the history so that the pain then becomes energy, and that energy becomes action. And hopefully it's loving action if it's coming from your spiritual center. So I really encourage you to go to uh, the Montgomery Museum because it's spectacular, really. I spent two days there taking notes because I was writing the book. And um, I could have spent even more time. It was just chock full of information. And it goes into incarceration, what's happening currently, and how, that, how the history of slavery is still happening in a way through uh, incarceration. OK, let's go to the next one. So we went to two slave castles. I think this was the peak of our trip. And uh, this is Otis in what they call the Door of No Return. And the ships would come right up to this door. Now there was beach. But at the time of the uh, international slave trade, the boats would come right up to this door, and the people who were enslaved would go from the dungeons. So we went into the dungeons. I wish I had pulled out a picture of the dungeons. Um, there are no windows, so they were completely in the dark. Nothing there but a dirt floor. And when the scientists, I don't know if they would be archaeologists or whatever, when they would 
uh, pick up dirt from the dirt floor. What they found was urine, feces, and blood, women's menstrual blood, were dug into the dirt floor because there was no place to go to the bathroom. There was no fresh air, nothing, uh, very little food. And if you survived the dungeon, then you went through this door and you had to survive the boats. And they didn't, they, the slavery people, I don't know what they called them, but anyway, those people, what? Yeah, they didn't care about people. Uh, they didn't even think about it as people. So if you died on the, the boat, they just threw you over the side. Um, and they only had, what, 10% of the people had to get to America for them to make their money. So they didn't care about anything. Now, one other thing about the door of no return, which was interesting, was recently, I think it actually was when Obama and his wife went to the slave castle, on the other side of the door, they put the door of return. And it was an invitation for people of the diaspora to come back to Africa and to reconnect with your roots and maybe stay. Um, okay, the Wasn't next... Wasn't that the 400-year? Yeah, right. yeah, that was a couple years ago they had the 400-year of return. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's it. go to the next... Oh, you didn't put the next slide on? What's the... There was a little uh, slide of my lineage oh, papers. No, oh. okay. Okay, well, let me just tell you about this then. So um, there is a ritual that I didn't know about at the door of no return, which is you bring photographs of your ancestors and your grandparents and people who might have, were involved with slavery, and you lay the pictures out on the floor and you pray for them right in this room. And I only heard about it the night before. So um, I thought, okay, how am I going to participate in this ritual? And I thought, okay, I'll make lineage papers. So this is something from Buddhism that we make lineage papers starting from Buddha, gave it to this person, gave it to this person, and at the bottom is your name. And we fold it up like origami, and we make an origami envelope. And I know how to do this because I've done it many, many times for my, you know, the people in my temple. So I made lineage papers for my African-American mothers. And there were four names on it. And I made the origami, and it was from notebook paper because that's all I had. I may, usually we do it on rice paper, special paper, you know, and we calligraphy on it and everything. But I made it from notebook paper. I put their names inside. And there were um, uh, wreaths all through the slave castle. Oh, there it is. And so at the door of the return, I put down the lineage paper for my mothers. And I'll just read you, that's the end of the book. And I find it quite beautiful, lineage papers, here it is. I knew there was no easy solution to the tear in the fabric of black identity or the devastation brought on by the construction of whiteness. But nevertheless, I stooped down and placed my small envelope amidst the flowered wreaths, opened my heart, and said my private prayer. I brought my black mothers back to Africa and prayed that this gesture might bring them some kind of rest. And that's actually the end of the book. I have an epilogue that goes after that. That's Now, I have a present for Otis. Otis. 
and he's not here. That's fine. Don't worry. Don't worry him. It is a gorgeous photograph of him in an African caftan. Is it that? Yes, the gold yeah. one. It's like it should be in the catalog. It's, I keep telling him. Yeah, I well, think we this is that. a photograph of him in that oh, caftan. So, um, are you seeing if you have yeah, a photograph I think, of it? I think I have it on Facebook. So, anyway, uh, please send in my love with that. I, we, I didn't understand some of the words you were using, like tubers. Like, what is... What, what? Tuber is like a sweet potato or a potato. They're, they're vegetables that are uh, grown underground. And they're specific in African tubers, too, that I had never eaten before. But they're very similar to potatoes or sweet potatoes. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, they're um, like the plantains. A lot of it was foods that we recognize because a lot of our foods do come from Africa. They were grown and carried over on those slave ships and planted here. So we there were some things that were familiar. The food was amazing because you didn't have preservatives and all the crap in the food. And so, I mean, I joke all the time, but literally that chicken that you saw running in the village was probably on our plate. <laughs> that night. That's how fresh the food is, right out of the ocean. And um, I felt okay. very healthy and connected to the earth when I was there. I got a couple. Yeah, go ahead. Um, when knowing the definition of a brownie, and they called you that, how did that make you feel? You know, I didn't take offense because I thought they were damn right were the white devils, you know? And I, what was interesting for me was being in a culture that was dominant black and I was the other. And I just experienced it the whole time I was there. And Obrani was the pinnacle of being the other. But I really was relating it to that's how black people feel in America. So I was always putting it in terms of experiencing what I called skin-deep projections, that you're not a human, you're your skin color. And it was very, very interesting for me to put myself in that position. We have, we have a little time. You have another one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, just this, this, uh, just kind of like a comment. Um, when you said uh, black dolls for Africa wouldn't do much, I would challenge that because um, s- our youth, wherever they are, seeing themselves um, in other things, seeing themselves is always helpful. You know, whether whether it's in a magazine, a comic book, or dolls. You know, seeing themselves as somebody, something important that you want to keep close to you, it's important. Mm-hmm. And the the norm was, you know, the standards of beauty, which is a white standard of beauty. Right. right? That's why this, well, I can assume that's why the, the young lady was like, oh, O'Brani, hey, I got, you know, it was like a status thing. But if we um, show ourselves in that same light, it can give more more confidence to our, our little so people. So I'll tell you the backstory to that. I think I feel guilty because Artika, Dr. Tyner, and I are trying to do black dolls, but I haven't made, I was supposed to make the doll and everything, and I haven't done my job. And it's been two years or something. So I feel a little guilty. But, but she... Yeah, it is important. And she does do, well, what she's working on is African, um, black literature for children. And one of her books has a black doll that goes along with it. But we were trying to expand on that, but I haven't done my job. (laughs) Question? Yes. Question. When you were over there, you're Jewish lady, correct? Yep. When you were over there, did you see anybody comparable to Simon Wiesenthal? No. <laughs> Thank you. 
Simon Wiesenthal was the Nazi hunter when the Holocaust was over. He tracked them down and did all that. And uh, I was just wondering, did you encounter anyone that was comparable in, on the continent to doing the work that he, he was yeah, doing Nazi at work. the time? You know, I was I didn't see that many white people, to tell you the truth. Mostly, and maybe that was because I was in a black tour, but I didn't notice that. The one thing on that, there was one, I just want to bring this up because it was uncomfortable for me. The night we went out to the jazz place to listen to music, and we were sitting, we didn't have reservations, we just went in, we were sitting, and I noticed that the staff went over to a table in the front, made the party move so that the white group that came in could uh, sit there. Right. And I was visibly thrown off by that, and I voiced it. Uh-huh. And so I sensed that there's still this colonial um, hierarchy that, okay, they were a British because I was listening to them speak, and I asked the owner, you know, why did they allow that? And there could be other things going on, but I remember that it gave me the appearance of there's still the colonialism, you know, acceptance right. in, in some spaces. I think it's imbued all over. That was my feeling. And, you know, I had done a lot of undoing racism workshops that they give for white people. And white supremacy was such a hard thing for me to say was within me while I was doing these groups. Because it seemed like, isn't that the Ku Klux Klan? You know, I'm not like that. But after I went to Africa and saw colonialism and the aftermath of it, now I'm really into saying white supremacy and owning it. And, and that was because even in a black-dominated, controlled place, it seeped out. Like, do you remember the chieftains? One of the chieftains said, it's in the book, I could look it up, but I can't remember exactly what he said, but like, Americans are smart and we Africans are dumb. Something like that, which was totally internalized white supremacy. And the other chieftain stood up and said, I will never say that, and I don't want you to say it. And, and I thought, wow, it's still so embedded. It's still embedded because it hasn't been that long. What is it we're talking about? 50, 60 years. So um, even there, uh, we need to free ourselves. And why I say we is because I think all, the whole world has to free this. Not just black people need to be free. White people need to be free of this limitation that we have. And also, what we don't get. It's very, very uh, wonderful for me to be in the black community and to be here. I get a lot out of it. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah. That, yes, I think I do. Yeah. yeah. That, that came across um, even before I read the book, and I read the book, and it's a great one, and we're going to give some away today so Judith can sign it while she's here. But the, the, having that experience with Judith and watching how she really interacted with the tribal communities and with everyone, and, you know, we do get loud and fun and Judith was right there we were dancing we were on the bus right on the boats on the bus wherever and then even just going to the beach where you talking about a beach party in Africa you go on the beach and you hear the music playing and the food grilling and just to have that experience and Judith is right there with us right there you know I think that's also because I'm a Jew I say that Jews are off-white because we have had 4,000 years of oppression. 
And the thing I learned is oppression, this kind of stress, actually changes your DNA. The telomeres of your chromosomes get lengthened, and so the generations that follow you have more likelihood for post-traumatic stress. Mm. So I think there's a lot of problems with the Jewish community and with the black and Jewish community together, but not speaking about that, just saying Jews... uh, have stressed family because we've always had an external oppressor and we're loud and laugh. And I feel comfortable in the black community because I'm as loud as you. And Italians, I think, I think the Mediterranean people Mm -hmm. also have kind of a expressiveness in their But do you feel that because of the experience, of course, the Holocaust and having that connection and and then we with being enslaved from Africa. So is that the connection you're describing? Well, I had hopes from the book, and this might be hard, but my hope was that if I really talked about self-hatred that I got from being an oppressed person and the stress So I'm going to say something. As a Jew, like even right now I'm doing a lot of public speaking because of the book, and I always am afraid. It's it's in my DNA almost that if I show who I really am in public, I'm going to get killed. And I think that has some similarity with racism. So that's where I think we mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. it's, it's the psychology of the oppressed is kind of similar, in my opinion. Did that answer your yes, question? It did. It did. Yeah. And we're about out of time. Do we have any more questions here? No, I'm just going to say something. Oh, that's right, DeMarcus. I'm sorry, I forgot. It was something that she said. Uh, I'm trying to remember because I was trying to hold it in. You said something about, they said, that give us your, um, what did you say? That they, they said, give us your resources. Resources, but, but not your advice. And that's what kind of it kind of threw me off because is it like they out of touch or their history too that they realize they don't really need our resources because all the resources are there on the continent of Africa? Like, what do they need? Like, did they forget they date traditions or how they used to live before any of that? You know? I, I, I took that um, because, you know, I thought about who was enslaved. It, they took the best of Africa. That's what they're referring to. They didn't take the sick people, the elderly. They took the kings, queens, doctors, and that's full of that when when you said something when you just said send me that I'm like why don't they go back to what their ancestors used to do unless they would brainwash or enslave to the point where they don't even remember what they used to do so it's been 400 years that the African Americans was enslaved before that 400 years must, something must have been going there going on there to throw them off for they don't even remember their old traditions and their way of living that's what kind of threw me when you said that that's why I brought that up it wasn't mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. 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 do you want to say something about that. I was just wasn't talking about the the general <laughs> the, the, the general sense of it. I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's like you're talking about what they have there already and what we get from there. It's like how come they can't like go back to the go back in the days when everything was more simpler and, and still use what they had. I'm just I was just saying that I understand where you're coming yeah, from. It wasn't I, I on the other. Right. One thing was interesting. We went to a dam. I thought, what the hell? Why am I going to a dam? You know, I mean, an electric power plant from the water. But the reason they took us to the dam was because that dam brought electricity to Ghana like 30 years before any of the other countries had electricity. So, and Nkrumah was the person who said, we have to have electricity. And he lived near the dam to make sure that it got built. And 
So what does that mean that they wanted to enter the 21st century, the 20th century at least? They wanted to have electricity. They want to have iPhones. Everyone had an iPhone. You would walk down the street and they would have an iPhone. They didn't have TVs. It was a little bit harder to get a TV. They're skipping cables. They're just going right to Bluetooth, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so there's a little bit of problem with underdeveloped countries saying you have everything you need and you're fine when they watch on television what Americans have. It kind of is a clash there. And the other thing that they told us when this guy said, well, what do you need? Often they said ambulances. Mm -hmm. And the story that stuck in my mind was not the president. I think it was the vice president of Ghana had a heart attack and they couldn't get an ambulance. And he died. Mm -hmm. This is... You know, the upper, upper class and everything. But they, do, they don't have enough health facilities in the same way as we know of health. And that's why I go back to it, it's that human factor. I kept hearing it. They feel as though we, African-Americans, descendants of um, enslaved from Africa, that we're so far advanced they want us to come back to Africa, to bring what we have, our resources, to Africa. And so that's why when you land, you will see that if you want dual citizenship, they will give it to you right there on the spot in the airport. <laughs> they want us there. I We could go on forever, but I think we need okay. to <laughs> respect. I think we're infringing on another class here, Brother Kofu's class. So let's pick... Now, you can um, take your book. I have the books here. Take them to Judith and she'll sign them. Mm -hmm.